we um, begin a new sermon series uh, for the next eight weeks up till Lent, or I'm sorry, not Lent. <laughs> I mean, Lent, let's be honest, Lent never ended, right? <laughs> We're still in Lent. Lent is the <laughs> Advent. Uh, the next eight weeks we'll be doing a series on the Beatitudes of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And um, I think every week I'm going to read the entire section because they all fit together. And so our scripture reading this morning uh, is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he, had, he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Father, um, you invite us up the mountainside with Jesus to hear him speak and to teach us. And we ask for a word this morning um, through your spirit um, that would help us to understand your kingdom and our place in that. We ask for a word of hope, a word of comfort as well um, that could bind up the brokenhearted and to the poor in spirit, Lord. Help us to understand what it means to be your people during this time, in, in this season of our life. Meet us in your word, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Matthew sets the scene of the Sermon on the Mount, and <clears throat> he is deliberately, <coughs> excuse me, he is deliberately calling uh, to our minds another scene in the history of Israel, and that is when Moses himself was on the mountain and brought the law of God and brought it to the people. And here Jesus is the new Moses. And the Sermon on the Mount, while not a displacement of the old law, is a restatement of it 
and the light of Jesus himself as the perfect fulfillment of that law. Unlike Moses, who had to ascend the mountain to receive the law of God, and then to send back to bring it to the people, Jesus simply opens his mouth. He doesn't need any stone tablets. He doesn't have to go up to receive it. He simply opens his mouth because he is the word of God. He is the law of God. He perfectly embodies and fulfills it. When Moses received the law, he had to come down from the mountain. He had to come down from the mountain to deliver it to the people. And in fact, the people were forbidden, were forbidden from going up the mountain. It was dangerous to even touch the mountain of God because the mountain represents the holy presence of God. To even touch the mountain is to be threatened by death itself. And the law comes to function as a barrier, an offense between the people and the holy presence of God up on the mountain. But when Jesus gives the law to his people, when he speaks, he ascends the mountain and he calls us to him up the side of the mountain to receive it. The law is no longer a barrier. The law and the teachings of God are no longer a barrier between us and God on the mountain, and that is because Jesus perfectly fulfills it. The exodus out of Egypt was the founding event of the people of Israel. They were a grace-based people. When they told the story of their nation, it begins in the exodus. However, it is the receiving of the law through Moses in which Israel is, in a sense, constituted, in which they have, to use our language, a constitution, where they become a political reality governed by a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. And Moses was a leader of Israel after the Exodus, but Moses was not a leader like a king or a traditional leader or a ruler. He was simply the teacher, a prophet, one who brings the law. And God's desire was to rule the people his people, through the law, not through kings. And this was God's desire up until the time of the kings. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents himself not only as Israel's teacher and prophet, but also as Israel's king. And the reason why he is, he is the teacher king is because, again, he is the law. He embodies it perfectly, he is the word of God. And when he commands to teach, he is not simply giving new commandments for us to obey and to keep in order to get to God. When Jesus commands and teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, what he is doing is he is inviting us into his life. He is inviting us into his reign, into his kingdom. This is the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we have to keep in mind as we move forward here. The law of Moses begins with ten commandments. Ten commandments that we must keep that regulate our relationship with God and with one another. But the Sermon on the Mount begins not with ten commandments, but with ten beatitudes. I'm sorry, eight beatitudes, or nine, depending on how you break them up. 
And these Beatitudes aren't so much commands as they are invitations. Beatitudes, they cast a vision, in a sense, of the good life. And they function as an invitation into Jesus' rule and reign. Uh, Beatitude, that word, it's not a word we use a lot. Um, It's almost exclusively now a word that just refers to these actual uh, statements of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And a beatitude, it comes from the word blessed. It comes from the word blessed, which start all the the sentence, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. But the problem is this word blessed, at least in English today, doesn't even come close to capturing uh, what the Greek word um, that is there Markarios, this sense of, of blessed, blessed is it's too religious, it's too spiritual. The deeper sense, I think, of the word is better, more like happy are those, flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. Really, the blessedness here of that word that Jesus speaks of, it's, it's really, this is the good life. He says, you might put it this way, the poor in spirit they have the good life because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here is talking about the good life. He's talking about what it means to be flourishing. He is giving us a God-centered picture of what true human flourishing is. The good life is not just spiritual in nature. It's cultural, it's social, it's political. In fact, all politics in one way or another All politics in one way or another is about the good life. And and when we are at war politically, what is happening really are dueling, competing versions of what the good life is. Different understandings of what the meaning of blessedness really is. And here Jesus is offering us and inviting us into a very peculiar vision of the good life. He is offering and inviting us into a way of being in the world that will result in our true flourishing as human beings, both now and in the age to come. That's what a beatitude is. It is a God-centered vision of true human flourishing. A God-centered vision of true human flourishing. Now, this is all well and good. I'm sure you're thinking, right? until you begin to read the fine print of these Beatitudes. Human flourishing, I want that, give it to me. The good life, give that to me. Poverty of spirit, mourning, gentleness, mercy, purity of heart, hunger for righteousness, persecution? This is the good life? This is what human flourishing looks like? This is not life, liberty, and happiness? or liberty, equality, and fraternity. These are not exactly anyone's ideas of human flourishing. They are deeply countercultural. They are a vision of the good life that entails a great deal of suffering. In 1831, the Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville um, arrived in America for a nine-month tour of the fledgling country. America had been only in existence a little over 50 years, and he, as an aristocratic Frenchman and social philosopher, de Tocqueville's goal was to study American democracy, 
to understand it. Because at the time, the idea of democracy as embodied in American government and its constitution was just an idea in philosophy books. And so Tocqueville wanted to come and understand and observe America. You know, its democratic spirit of government, the principles of freedom and equality and self-rule by the majority. And one of de Tocqueville's goals with his trip, and this comes out in his book, Democracy and Amer in America, which is a classic book, which is still very insightful today, very long though. One of the things that de Tocqueville was interested in is what is the moral character of Americans. He wasn't just interested in American government and how it worked, but what was the moral character? What were, as he called them, the habits of the heart that made American democracy work? And so in his book, he covers a lot of different things he talks about that are peculiar moral characteristics of American people. Uh, a couple examples he gives are family life, the centrality of life of the family, religious tradition. Even though religion isn't established officially in America as it was in Europe, there was a way that, that the average American uh, venerated religious tradition. This was a big part of democracy. Um, he talks about individualism, talks about participation in local politics. Now, what's interesting for de Tocqueville is he, he, under, he, he understood, going all the way back to Plato and really the Bible, that every political reality, every social reality presumes a set of virtues or customs or habits of the heart that support it, that make it possible. And when those disappear, that form of government also disappears or becomes untenable. I like that phrase, habits of the heart, and the way that that is situated within a sort of political understanding, because I think that that's precisely what the Beatitudes are all about. They're habits of the heart. But they're habits of the heart of what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And that's what we'll be exploring in, in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What are those habits? And you might think of the habit of the heart as a, is, it's the way the heart thinks. It's a form of instinct. It's instinctual knowledge. It's, it's a combination of custom and a vision of what reality is, and a lot of practices, all bound up in one. And what Jesus is giving us here in the Sermon on the Mount is, is a vision, and, which is also an invitation, into the kingdom of God. And I think right now, more than ever, uh, we, we need this. We need a, to be renewed in a kingdom vision of God in our world. We need to live from these habits of the heart and into them. And I, I mean, obviously, the political dimension of the Beatitudes, I hope, is very clear to you now. It's very easy for us to just interpret these statements as just purely kind of spiritual, inward thing, and then all the, the external stuff of the body and politics and, is another thing. But we, I don't need to say this. We are living through an intense and really incredible uh, time as a country politically, there is so much anxiety, there is so much division within the body of American politics that is, is overwhelming us. And I think it's very, very easy for us to lose our kingdom perspective. And in fact, I think the great temptation of Christians 
today, and this is on all sides of the political spectrum, is to let the partisan landscape of American politics to be the lens through which we begin to interpret what it means to be a Christian or what the meaning is of the kingdom of God. But this is dead wrong. It is dead wrong. We need to step back. We need to step back from our politics, from all the the rage and all the, the, the noise, and we need to remember that our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God and secondarily to American democracy. We are Christian before we are Americans. We are Christians before we are Americans. We need to learn to let the kingdom of God be the lens through which we interpret our identity as Christians, as Americans, rather than let whatever our particular uh, political identities are in the partisan sense, to interpret our Christianity. Of course, that's easier said than done. As Christians in America, our greatest political contribution to the earthly political order is not advocating and voting according to a certain political agenda or platform. Vote, please vote, be engaged. These things do matter. I'm not saying they don't matter. What I'm saying is that they have a matter of secondary importance. And if what is missing from our political witness is faithfulness to the kingdom of God as we embody these habits of the heart, kingdom habits of the heart, we contribute nothing. The textbook definition of the salt losing its saltiness is when we allow our Christian Christian understanding of the kingdom to be reinterpreted by American politics. Friends, the Christian faith is political. I'm not trying to be apolitical here. But again, our greatest contribution as Christians is when our faithfulness to the kingdom of God exceeds our politicking in the earthly city. It's that. When that happens, then we really will contribute to American democracy. This is what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be renewed? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Living into these beatitudes, these habits of the heart, is what it means to be salt and light in the world. And that's what we're going to explore over the next eight weeks. And Jesus opens his sermon saying, Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who are poor in spirit. This first word of instruction is key because it lays the foundation for everything else which is to come. Everything that comes after this, everything in this statement about poverty of spirit lays a foundation for all of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a kind of entry point, if you will. Not just into the sermon, but also into the kingdom of God. It's important that Jesus... Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for to them belongs the kingdom of God. Let's um, explore this statement with the rest of our time here. And the first thing I want to do is I just want to draw your attention to the fact that this is not a command. It's a description. It's a descriptive statement. It's not a command. It's a descriptive statement about reality. Jesus does not say, Um, those who become poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. 
he is saying that those whose lives are characterized by poverty of spirit, who are poor in spirit, it's to these kinds of people to whom the kingdom of God belongs. We associate uh, the word poor in spirit with humility. And that's right. I think Jesus is talking about the virtue of humility. But I think it's actually really important that he doesn't say, blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think that's important because Jesus is not saying those who are able to embody the virtue of humility can enter the kingdom. Because to become poor, to become poor in spirit is not something we can do for ourselves. It's something that is done to us. You know, we often talk about humbling ourselves. But more often in li- than not in life, we're not humbling ourselves. We're humbled. <laughs> there are circumstances, there are things that are outside of our control and our desires that come into our life and they humble us. I mean, as many monks and ascetics did throughout the Christian tradition, they took this statement and they sold everything. And they gave to the poor. You can make yourself poor, materially. But it's actually very difficult to make yourself spiritually poor, inwardly destitute. It is true that poverty does have a way of translating on the inner sense. That they're not like separate things, but there are many poor people who are very proud. You can't make yourself spiritually poor. You know, we love ourselves too much. We love ourselves too much. We are unable to bring ourselves to a place of of helplessness and vulnerability and dependence. It's something that is done to us. And in this sense, it is an act of God's grace in our life. To be made spiritually poor, to become helpless and dependent, ruined and wrecked and broken, it's something that is done to it, and it's actually an act of God's grace. Spiritual poverty is a gift from God. This is a very upside-down, countercultural, paradoxical thing to say. But it is a gift from God. And the reason, for, because it is a, the reason it is a gift from God is because it is the beginning, it is the foundation of a relationship with God. Let me remind you of, recall your attention back to what Isaiah says from our sacred reading. This is such an important text. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell dwell in the high and the holy place, up on the mountain, but also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Contrite means broken, repentant. I dwell on high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly, in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God, in a very special way, is present to those who are inwardly poor and destitute and broken and downtrodden. Nothing will keep us away from the presence of God like our own pride. Pride pushes God away. I mean, pride just pushes everybody away. (laughs) But pride pushes God away. This is why, again and again in the scriptures, you find this refrain. This is what James says, that, you know, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
See, when we're proud, we're filled up with ourself. And there's little room for God. But when we're broken, when we have this sense that we lose ourselves, now all of a sudden there's space for God. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves that we then truly come into the presence of God. It is only when we have been emptied of ourselves that we can be filled up with God. This is a fundamental principle. You might think of this as a first principle of spiritual reality. That's why I call it the foundation of all human flourishing. To be a human being is to be a worshiper created in the image of God, and the very first truth you have to reckon with is your own poverty. This is the condition for coming into God's presence. So the question is, then, well, how does this happen? If it's not something I do to myself, or I can do for myself, how does it happen? There are two, two great, I think, personal realizations, if you might call them that, that make a person poor in spirit. Two things, they're interrelated. The first is an encounter with the greatness of God. And the second is an awareness of the smallness of myself. The greatness of God and the smallness of myself. Now, by the greatness of God, I mean a lot of things. The greatness of God is the godness of God, the reality of God. Not simply that God exists. For most people, believe that God exists. But for most people, God is, is it's just an idea, just a concept. There's no weight. There's no reality. There's nothing that presses down. The reality of God is just sort of there. But to have a sense of the greatness of God is to have a sense of the godness of God, that, that God is sovereign, that, that he holds my life in his hand, that he is all-powerful. It is to get a glimpse of God's holiness and glory, the kind of thing that is beauty beyond imagination, but to even see it is actually painful, to come into the presence of God. Um, throughout the scriptures, anytime a person goes into the unvarnished presence of God, like Isaiah is the chief example, they are undone. They are overwhelmed. God tells Moses, when Moses says, I want to see your glory, he says, you can't see my glory and live. Most of us, most of our culture, do not have a sense of the greatness of God. We have a very small and domesticated and predictable God that stays on the sidelines of our life. But this is not God. God is more, God is not a domesticated house cat. God is more like a wild animal <laughs> who is dangerous that you do not want to meet in the wild. That is the God of the Bible. An encounter with the greatness of God is is central to having a sense of our own spiritual poverty. And oftentimes, it will lead to a sense of my own smallness of self. But these are not always coordinated. Sometimes uh, the, the, the circumstances of life have to humble us first before we can even begin to think about God. Sometimes the, the brush of our egos has to be cut down before we can see past ourselves. But to become aware of the smallness of myself is an important part of what it means to be poor in spirit. And I mean a couple things by this. The smallness of myself, first, is, is a confrontation. And it's almost always a confrontation. 
it's never coming as just like, oh, a welcome sort of realization. It is a confrontation with my finitude, with my mortality, my creatureliness, my limits, that I am vulnerable, that I don't hold my life in my hands. I didn't give myself life, and I, even though I think I control my life and I make decisions, there's actually very little that I can control. I am much weaker than I thought, more vulnerable. I can get sick, I can get ill, and ultimately I will die. I will die, even though I never think about it, and I try to put it off. I will die. I will cease to exist someday. And this is all very humbling knowledge. And it usually doesn't come to us theoretically. It actually comes to us in the form of events and circumstances that force it upon you. And then you have to reckon with that reality of your finitude, of your mortality, when you experience pain and suffering and loss and deprivation. But the second part of my, the smallness of myself is being confronted with my deep sinfulness. Not only am I a creature that is weak and mortal, I am a sinner. I have this propensity to always screw things up. No matter how hard I try, I screw it up. I hurt others. I hurt myself. I always interpret the events of anything that happens in my life. I minimize my wrong or my culpability and I maximize my good. That's part of being a sinner. I'm always spinning. I'm always screwing up. And it's very easy for me to hide behind even my virtues and still be a sinner. It is this poverty of spirit is a deep knowledge of the smallness of myself. It is as Wendell Berry says in Jaber Crow, um, in his novel, it is knowledge that crawls across your skin. It's knowledge that crawls across your skin, the smallness of myself, and it reduces me. It makes me feel my misery. It makes me feel my helplessness and my vulnerability. It breaks my spirit, and it causes us to cry out for help. But it is precisely this kind of knowledge that opens us up to God. Poverty of spirit is an estate that few of us would describe as a place of human flourishing. I don't think any of us are seeking it out. It just happens to us. And all, the, all of our politics, whether on the right or the left, are really set up in such a way to protect us from not just material poverty, but actual spiritual poverty. Our politics today are very much about our own identities, our cultural, our racial, our national identities, our desire for security and independence and authority and power. And yet, in the midst of all this, Jesus is saying to us, blessed are the spiritually poor, Blessed are those who are vulnerable. Blessed are those who are broken. For theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God belongs to you. You are the true citizens of God's kingdom. As we will see in the weeks to come, uh, being poor in spirit is the foundation of all the rest of these beatitudes. If you're not poor in spirit, 
you can't mourn. If you're not poor in spirit, you're not going to be gentle. You're not going to be merciful. If you're not poor in spirit, you can't be a peacemaker. You don't hunger for righteousness. But even more, if you're not poor in spirit, you won't understand and yearn to receive the grace of God in your life. Only the poor in spirit are able to live into a grace-based identity. Only the spirit, only those who are poor in spirit can live from grace because they sense deep, deep in their core that they need God. They need God. They need his grace. Perhaps you are in a place this morning where you feel your spiritual poverty. You feel weak. You feel helpless. Maybe even you feel worthless. You've been humbled by life, broken. You've lost a lot. Maybe you've failed in really big ways. And you don't feel like you have much to give or contribute or that you are of much account. Blessed are you. Blessed are you, flourishing are you, because to you belongs the kingdom of God. Friends, know that your, your brokenness, your poverty of spirit is not a barrier between you and God. Our tendency is to interpret these things and these feelings in our life as God's displeasure. But it's the opposite. It's his favor. It's him bringing you to a point. He brings you to this doorway into his gracious presence. Friends, spiritual brokenness is the doorway into God's gracious presence. Go through it. Go through it to receive mercy and grace and comfort. For as the psalmist says, in his presence is fullness of joy and the pleasures forevermore. Amen. Father, we do, we pray that we, um, would enter into your presence as those who are broken and to receive comfort. Our pride is so subtle. Um, we have, our hearts are, are so crafty to push you away in so many ways. Lord, it is a hard thing to, to be thankful for brokenness, to see it as something that is good, to see it as something that leads to flourishing, and yet that is the promise of the gospel, that in our brokenness, in our pain, in our destitution, you meet us in a very special way, and you bring us comfort and mercy and joy, and I pray that would be true today especially for those who really feel their spiritual poverty, who feel it and perhaps feel overwhelmed by it. May you show comfort and mercy and joy. We give you thanks and praise for our Savior, for our King, and for our Teacher. Lord, teach us what it means to have this habit of the heart. Give it to us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.